sometimes things are not as bad as they seem. Earlier this month, five uh, police cars descended on the North Sea Observatory in Lincolnshire in England. They were responding to a call from two dog walkers who'd walked past the Seascape Cafe when they saw a terrifying scene. They looked in the windows to see a a candlelit room with bodies scattered across the floor. They immediately concluded that there had been some kind of mass murder as part of a, a strange ritual. So they called the police who quickly appeared on the scene only to find that instead of some gruesome murder, this was a group of very relaxed people enjoying a yoga class. Sometimes things are not as bad as they seem. But sadly, sometimes they are. We live in a world where terrible tragedies do happen. Where heavy rainfall and poorly maintained dams in Libya, lead a flash flood that kills maybe up to 20,000 people. Where earthquakes take the lives of up to 60,000 in Turkey and Syria in February of this year. Where 10,000 children die every day from hunger and related causes. Where violence and war and murder and illness and accidents take away our loved ones and leave us desperately searching for comfort and for answers. So what are we supposed to do when things are as bad as they seem? Where do we go for comfort and answers? How should we, as people of faith, respond to times like that? Well, last week, we were introduced to Job. A man of incredible purity and piety and prosperity. But one day, his life fell apart. And though his experience and his response to it doesn't answer all the questions that we have about this whole issue of suffering, it does help us to start to get some answers to these really difficult issues in our lives. So this morning we're going to read Job chapter 1, verse 8 to verse 22, and Lorraine is going to come and she's going to read it for us. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabines attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord had taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Thank you, Lorraine. I think the first lesson that we can learn from this passage is a really obvious one. In this world, bad things happen to good people. As we saw last week, the Lord described Job as the best of us. He said, verse 8, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And yet, on this tragic day, Job's life was absolutely decimated in four waves that came quickly one after the other. As we read, a messenger arrived and gave him the first devastating news of an unexpected and violent raid on his oxen and donkeys. The Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who is left, who has escaped to tell you. But while he was still trying to get his head around that, the next messenger arrived to tell him that there had been something like a freak lightning storm. The fire of God from the sky fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. But still the trauma of that day wasn't over. Before the second messenger should, could finish, another one appeared to say the Chaldeans had formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. And even after those three terrible news flashes, the worst was still to come. The last messenger told him that his seven sons and three daughters had been having a party together. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they're dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. 
Sometimes we might complain that we've had the worst day ever. But I don't think any of us have had a day like that. All of his livestock was stolen. All of his servants were murdered. All of his kids were dead. In one day, Job had plummeted from incredible wealth and prosperity to devastating poverty and grief. But this doesn't fit with the ideas of many people. They have this idea that if you trust in God, then you'll be spared the worst of what this world can do to us. As we'll see in later weeks, this was a theology of Job's friends. They believe that this world follows some kind of pattern of fairness and justice. Bad people suffer. Good people are blessed. But that's not what happened to Job. And neither is it, of course, what happened to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate best of us. And yet, he is described as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. So if we reject the idea that bad people or that good people could suffer in this world, what are we going to do with the suffering of Jesus? Jesus suffered. And he also taught that his followers should expect to suffer too in this world. He told us in John chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble. Now, we're going to be thinking about this in more detail as we go through this book. But we really need to get to grips with this truth. If our faith is going to survive living in this world, we need to understand this reality. In this world, bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to God's. But of course, this leaves us with the question of why? Why do these things happen? One suggestion is that these things happen kind of outside of God's control. That we're caught up in some ongoing cosmic struggle between good and evil, between God and the devil. And, and we suffer when kind of evil can breaks in to this world or, or breaks free of God's control. And so the devil attacks his people. But that's not what happened in Job's life. However much we struggle with this, this passage clearly teaches us that God was in control. On that terrible day. Job suffered because God gave Satan permission to attack him. Look at verse 12. 
Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Yes, God limited what Satan could do. You can attack what Job has, but not a job himself. But God allowed Satan to attack Job. I think this really challenges and stretches our understanding of God and our faith in him. We'll see it it rocked the job to the core. But this is the teaching of this passage. Our God is sovereign over this universe. He is in control even in the worst of days. The ultimate example of this, of course, is the cross of Jesus, as I've just remembered in in communion. When Jesus died on the cross, it rocked the disciples to the core. They had no idea why that was happening. It seemed like evil had triumphed. It seemed like God had lost. But later, when they prayed about what Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews had done to Jesus. This is what they said to God. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They understood that God was in control. Even when their Lord was nailed to a cross. Job understood this concept of our sovereign Lord to some extent. His incredible response is later in this chapter. In verse 21 he says this, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Yes, there were, were more immediate causes to Job's suffering. There was the the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. There was the the fire and the, the wind. There was even Satan. They were the more immediate causes of Job's suffering. But ultimately, Job understood that the Lord was in control of this. He was sovereign over that day. Now, I think many of us will struggle to get our heads around this. But this truth is not just difficult for us. When we accept it, it can also be incredibly comforting. What it means is that our lives are never out of control. They are never empty or meaningless. Or random. Nothing happens without God allowing it to happen. And of course, that doesn't explain as to why this happened. And it seems here that Job didn't really ever get the answer as to why. Even at the end of this book, when Job gets 
an answer. It's not the answer as to why. But we are given an insight into what was happening that Job was never. We are taken to that heavenly cabinet meeting between the Lord and his angels and even with Satan there. And as we saw last week, the Lord asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? It was as if God was presenting Job as an example of someone who faithfully lived for him. It was the evidence that would silence Satan's constant accusations that God is not worthy of worship. Look Satan, look at Job. Look at him. Look how he lives for me. Look how he loves me. Look how he serves me. Satan wasn't impressed. If you look at verse 9, Satan replied, Does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? goes on, verse 10. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. Satan couldn't contradict God when he spoke about Job's blameless life. And so he, instead he attacked Job's motives. Yeah, sure, Job fears you. But he doesn't do it out of love and respect. He doesn't do it because you are worthy of praise. He's just doing it because of all the blessings that you give to him. He just serves you because you've built a, a protective hedge around him. Satan was basically saying that Job believed in the prosperity gospel, as it's called. That, that, that way of thinking that says if you trust God and if you live for him, then he will bless you with a long life of health, wealth and happiness. Satan was saying, well, Job doesn't love you. He doesn't have loyalty to you. He's just a, a mercenary who is in it for what he can get out of it. He loves the gifts and not the giver. It was an accusation against Job. But there's a greater accusation here, a deeper accusation. This is really an accusation against God. It was attacking God's worth and God's value. Satan was basically saying that the only way God can get someone to worship him is to promise them wealth. Nobody really loves you, God. They just want what you can give them. And so Satan came up with this suggestion. An experiment, so to speak, that, would can be, that he was convinced would prove his case. 
Verse 11, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. If God took away all the good things that he had given, the protection and the blessings, Satan was sure that Job would show his true colours. His love and loyalty to God would just immediately disappear. And so God allowed Satan to try and prove his case. Now in this passage, it's not, it was not just uh, stated why God allowed Job or Satan to prove his case. Why did God allow Satan to attack Job? It's not said. But clearly we know it isn't because God wanted to find out if Job really loved him or not. Because God knew Job's heart. The Lord searches every heart and understands the motive, or every motive behind the thoughts. God understands. God knew that Job really did love him. He knew that this, this accusation from Satan was a false accusation. But instead, God allowed this to happen. In some ways to reveal Job's true motives. To help Job grow in his understanding of God. And lots and lots of other reasons, potential reasons to bless us as we read his experience, of course. But more importantly and ultimately, God allowed Satan to attack Job to reveal God's glory. To reveal that God is worthy of worship. Not just because of the good things that He gives, but because of who He is. That whatever is happening in our lives, God is worthy of all the glory and honour, all the love and the loyalty, all the praise and worship. Now, of course, we can't conclude that every bad thing in our lives is because of a similar discussion in heaven like what happened here with Job. We can't just take this one example and extrapolate it out to explain every experience of suffering that we've had in our lives. But what it does tell us very clearly is that there is more going on in this world than we can see. Just like with Job, we might experience suffering and tragedy and pain without ever knowing the reason why. But just because we don't understand the reason why, it does not mean that our suffering and struggle is meaningless or empty. We can trust that God has his reasons. He knows what he is doing. And ultimately he is bringing good out of bad. The ultimate example of this again is the cross of Jesus. 
Initially, the disciples had no idea why God had allowed this to happen. Why would God allow his own son to be crucified and to die in such agony and shame? And yet today we rejoice that there was so much more going on that day than they could see or that they could understand. We rejoice that the suffering of Jesus was meaningful. Because though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In the the worst of days, God was working out the greatest of good. I think we'll see this emphasised again in in Job as we go through. But if we rush to judge our circumstances and our experiences and our suffering based on what we can see, based on what we can understand, again and again we're going to get it wrong. Instead we need to leave the question of why in God's hands. We need to trust that he knows what he is doing. And that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. And it's that trust that Job showed in such an amazing way on that day. This day was devastating on Job. We can never overestimate, overexpress how devastating that was on Job. Verse 20, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. These were the actions of a man overwhelmed in grief and sorrow. And we'll see more of the the depths of that pain and suffering as we go through, especially when we look at chapter 3 in which Job really expresses his grief. But what Job did next was not to curse God, as Satan said he would. He didn't run to bitterness or to anger, as we often do in grief. Instead, incredibly, he fell to the ground in worship. In the midst of the pain and suffering, when Job's whole life fell apart, Job worshipped the Lord. That's what he said. Verse 20. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. May not have been the most attractive, or spectacular, or musically accomplished worship time. But it was such an incredibly powerful 
expression of worship. Expression of faith. Job understood that he brought nothing into this world. That everybody is born into this world the same. Naked. Helpless. Dependent. And he understood that we can take nothing out of this world. That no matter how much we have or how much we earn, you can't take it with you. We leave it all behind. And so he realized the Lord's generosity and grace in all that he had enjoyed and he accepted the Lord's sovereign right to take that away. And so he still praised the Lord for who he is. Satan was wrong. Job did not worship God for his gifts. He didn't pretend to love God so that he would be prosperous or blessed or get what he wanted. Instead, Job believed that the Lord was worthy of worship Because of who he is. And even in these darkest of days, Job glorified the Lord. So yes, we can worship the Lord. And we should worship the Lord when everything is going great. If your bank balance is full this morning, if your stomachs are full, if your family is happy and your hearts are absolutely full of joy, then worship the Lord in gladness. But it is really when everything else is taken away and all that we have is the Lord, it's then that we can show He is our everything. That if all that we have in this world is God, then He is enough. As Habakkuk declared in Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, picture of absolute destitution and poverty. Yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. This is the challenging reality of this chapter, I think. It declares God is worthy of our worship all the time. Not just because of the good things that he gives to us. Not just because of the protection and the provision and his presence with us. But because of who he is. So whatever is happening in our lives. God is worthy of all the glory and honour. All of our love and loyalty. All of our praise. And all of our worship. Sometimes things are as bad as they seem. But even in the worst of times, 
we can hold on to these amazing truths. In this world, bad things do happen to good people. We don't need to accept the accusations and the condemnations of others. In this world, God is in control. There's no such thing as something that's happening outside of God's sovereign will. And so we can rest that God is in control. That our lives are not meaningless. They're not empty. They're not pointless. They're not random. We can rest in the amazing truth that there's more going on than we know. That even in the worst of situations, God is still working for our good and for His glory. And that ultimately, God is always worthy of our worship. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. May the name of the Lord 